Okay, I actually gave you two sets of notes because last week I kind of talked through uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Didn't really, uh, so I gave them to you so that you can look at them. There are some words there that are, that are kind of picked apart, so you would have that. And then tonight we're pro- primarily going to be working off of this one, Mystery Man Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So, um, just to go to the notes, which gives us, did you get? Okay. Uh, here you go. I got last week's. Yep. Oh. There you go. John? I need two. Oh, just this week's. There you go. Do you want me to take them? Are you going to hand them off to someone Okay. So you're not, you can complete your thought? Okay. So just the first, uh, the first page or so is basically just a recap first page in, in, in a quarter or so, so, uh, but I think I'll just go over it because I think it, it gives us a review of what we've covered over the last weeks and last week, that while this is the ninth major exhortation, it's delivered within the context of the third primary warning. There are five primary warnings that come uh, in the book of Hebrews, and so uh, what we've been looking at is the, uh, the real danger of refusing to grow and remaining in a state of spiritual immaturity, that that is something that God takes very seriously. And uh, when a person, when a believer becomes obstinate in refusing to, to follow the command to continue to grow, to grow to spiritual maturity, it demonstrates a, a lack of, of reverence and respect for the sacrifice of Christ. And uh, it may subject the believer into being locked permanently during their sojourn here into a state of spiritual maturity. Uh, That's why the author of Hebrews, back in chapter 6, after he says, you know, leaving the elementary discussions of this, that, and the other thing, uh, going on to perfection, and that he would go back and cover those things if God permits. God does not permit that in all cases. So there are times when as an act of chastisement, as an act of discipline, he will lock a believer into a state of spiritual immaturity. And we talked about last week all of the ramifications and consequences that would go along with being a believer but being locked into a state of spiritual immaturity. Now, the reality is, and I said this two weeks ago, I said it last week, and I, and I, I think I'll say it again this week, is I wonder if that is what is going on in the church today. You know, uh, where where so many so many believers, and I have no doubt as to their as to the genuineness of their confession, they really seem to be happy with just remaining in a state of spiritual immaturity. That they don't really take the issue of Bible study of growing in the Scripture seriously. So the author, uh, though he was concerned for them, he knew that they were capable even if they had forgotten, so he keeps enjoining them to move on. The author was speaking in harsh terms to them of what was ahead of them if they did not change direction, that is, repent. He was convinced that they were capable of better things, the things that accompany salvation. The author loved his people. The author knew what was in their own hearts, even if they had forgotten, uh, that that each and every believer is now a temple of the Holy Ghost. And so uh, 
that that doesn't change. It didn't change. It wouldn't change. Uh, but they had this. We all have this unlimited potential for growth uh, within us. And so, with confidence and great desire, he encourages the people to remember what it was that drove them on in the beginning, and to get going again, and get growing again, to move on to spiritual maturity. There are three commands that that we've looked at: to be diligent. Don't become sluggish and imitate those who finish the race with the goal of inheriting the promises. But his confidence was based more upon more than just his estim the estimation of their true faith. It was based primarily upon the character of God and the promises he had made. The two immutable things, his taking of an oath and his very character. <clears throat> Excuse me, we read in Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 17, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, uh, so that we might have strong consolation, that is a mighty calling uh, of, to brought near comfort, solace, and refreshment to those who have fled for refuge to run from something to something. Okay, so you'll remember last week that uh, as, we, as we closed in on the verses in chapter 6, there, uh, I read verses 19 and 20, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. So this, there's the switchback, I said this last week, switchback to nautical terminology here, nautical metaphors. And so... As I said last week, when a ship was caught in a storm and wanted to get into a harbor, at times it would be very dangerous for it to cross the breakwater because when you, you know, in, 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 uh, in some harbors, you have to pass over a breakwater to get into the harbor, and the breakwater is, is typically where the water shallows out. And because the water shallows out, the waves run high and, and will take the ship and slam it against the rocks or scuttle it. So what, what the sailors used to do is they would get into, a couple of sailors would get into a smaller boat, they would take the anchor of the larger ship and they would row in, they would go in with the smaller boat that would not be in danger of running aground, get past the breakwater inside the harbor and set the anchor there so that the boat, so that the ship would be stable. So that's that's this anchor of hope here. And then in verse 20, it says, Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. So the forerunner there is representative of the guys who would go into the boat and cross the breakwater, drop the anchor in the safe breakwater, thus securing the ship during the storm. That that there is a metaphor, a nautical metaphor, then, uh, then uh, referencing Jesus as the forerunner who goes in. And then it closes out and, and goes back to the Melchizedek discussion. Having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now, 
uh, he, 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 the parenthetical ends. And so, as I said last week, if you went back to, uh, to verse 10 in chapter 5, right? Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and jump straight to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It's, it's a seamless transition for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. So, so what comes between those two verses is that parenthetical where he has to stop because he feels he has to pull them up short because of their, that they should be teachers. They were still in a state of spiritual maturity. Okay, so now, having done that, he launches back into uh, this, this discussion about this Melchizedekian priesthood. And so that's what, that's what we're going to do tonight, is we're going to see if we can learn some things about this man Melchizedek and about the priesthood that he represents, that Christ comes as the, is the, as the last and the eternal priest who walks in the succession of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay. So what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, he's only referenced in two portions of the Old Testament. The first is Genesis chapter 14. So let's go to Genesis chapter 14 for a moment and see what we read there. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 14, <coughs> Uh, the, we have the story there of the, of the kings who came and uh, took Lot into captivity and, you know, basically raided several towns and, and took their possessions, took their women and children and carried them off. And Abra Abram, uh, is, he, he takes his men and he goes after them and recovers, you know, Lot and recovers the you know, the things that had been taken specifically from Sodom. And so he's on his way back. And then we read in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands, and he gave him, that is, Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe of all. Okay, so what, what can we glean? I mean, the information is there in your notes, but I'd rather have the discussion than, than, than just read notes, you know, kind of have us all participate. From just that verse, what can we glean about Melchizedek? This this person, Melchizedek. Okay, so so what 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 is so in Christianity, and you'll still find it if you go, you know, when you type in Melchizedek on your web browser, you get all kinds of weird stuff, right? Including that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Is that possible? Yeah, but this 
Why? Um, first of all, the king of the city. Okay, so let's talk about that. So we'll stop right there. Let's pick it apart a little bit. So the king of the city that he, the city that he was king of was Jerusalem. Okay, but Jerusalem was a Jebusite city until King David conquered it, right? So... So it was a Jebusite city. So who were the Jebusites? So the Jebusites were descendants of Heth, who was the second-born son of Canaan. Okay, Canaan, the son of Ham. Okay, all right. So, so he was the king of this city, right? But the question is, is it plausible that this Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. I got a question. Yeah. What's the, the verse that says you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Who's that in reference to? It's referring to a priesthood. No, who's it speaking of? I was going to look it up. Who is the Bible speaking to saying you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek? It's speaking to Christ. So then I would say no, he can't be because Right? Well, okay, why? I don't know. My head's spinning. So okay, very simple why he, this could not be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus because he was a priest. In order for him to be a priest, he had to be human. Right? So he had to be a priest. He had to be human because he couldn't function in the role of priest without being human, right? It's the very definition, the very definition of priest that God has set down. It, it comes out clearly in the Levitical priesthood, but clearly this is a priesthood that was before the Levitical priesthood, right? And so, so, so he had to be a man. Now, the second question I asked myself, well, Okay, he was a man. He was the king of a Jebusite city. Does that mean that he was a Jebusite man? No, he could not be a Jebusite man. He could not be a Jebusite man because the line of Canaan was cursed. You notice in the in the in the uh, in the cursing. Remember, Ham was the one who walked in and saw Noah naked. And then came out, and so when Noah pronounced the curse, the curse he didn't pronounce on his son Ham, he pronounced it on Ham's son. And only one of Ham's son, because Ham had three sons, he pronounced the curse only on Canaan. So that line was cursed. And that's where the Jebusites come from? And that's where the Jebusites come from, yes. Yes, it was a Jebusite city. All the historical records point to Jerusalem being a Jebusite city at this time. Okay, so so he was a man, but not a Jebusite. Okay, all right. So we know we know that much. So we know that it was a priesthood, and it was a priesthood that Abraham recognized. Right, because Abraham paid tithe to this priesthood. Now it's important to 
think about the whole concept of tithe. You know, when when you know when when we talk about tithing from the pulpit, when we talk about tithing at business meeting, when you give your tithe, are you ultimately giving your tithe to the church? Who are you giving your tithe to? You're paying your tithe to God, right? So the church is the mediator of that tithe, but that tithe is ultimately delivered to God, is one that you're giving to God. And so Abraham, Abram recognized that this man, who was a priest, he recognized him as a legitim the legitimate priest of God because Abraham was paying tithe to God through this priest. Okay, so that much we know all right so and and uh, one other thing as I mentioned two weeks ago I may have mentioned it several times that that phrase in the order of Melchizedek that word order actually means a succession right so that word succession means that there was more than one and that there's been more than one Melchizedek Melchizedekian priest throughout time up until Christ. Christ comes and he now assumes because all right. So how is the priesthood passed? Right. So can you can the father and the son be high let's just now by looking at the Levitical priesthood which is somewhat modeled after the Melchizedekian priesthood in the Levitical priesthood could you have a father and son both act as high priest at the same time? Okay, so, so in order for the priesthood to pass from the father to the son, what usually had to happen? The father died. Okay, same thing seems to, be, seems to hold true with a Melchizedekian priesthood up until Christ. Now Christ becomes, he, he assumes the role of the Melchizedekian priest for all eternity. Because he doesn't die. Okay, all right. So when you start thinking about this, you know, you start thinking about, well, we, and we talked about this, go ahead. Wouldn't that mean then that this lineage was in the lineage of Christ? Yes. Yes. Right? So the, the lineage in the Old Testament, wherever it is, is it Adam and Saul, is that it? Well, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. All right. So... This much we know. That much I think we can... Now, of course, we're kind of speculating, but I think our speculation um, is borne out because other greater minds have speculated in the same way. All right, so let's go back to the notes now. All right. So again, some of those phrases there, I'm on page 2, under point A, Subpoint two, who was he? Well, he was the king of Salem, literally the ruler of a place called Peace. Salem, Peace here, is used as a proper noun, not an adjective, therefore it refers to a place. He was priest of the Most High God. Uh, priest there means principal officer, chief ruler of God the highest. He was the God-appointed ruler, principal officer of a place called Peace. What did he do? He brought out bread and wine for the refreshment of Abraham and his men in returning from battle. Though he was a ruler, he was humble and compassionate, and he pronounced the blessing upon Abraham. And Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of the spoil. Okay, so another, 
<clears throat> so also, you know, when you read those commentaries that say that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, what they say confirms it is that he, he brought bread and wine, right? And what do we associate bread and wine with? Yeah, there's the prototypical communion service right there, right? But that's not it. That's not it. This was a, as we'll see, this was a customary peace offering uh, that was given during this time period. Okay, why? Why the peace offering? Well, we'll see when we get to the end. Anyway, and Psalm 10, Psalm 110.4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we jump to the New Testament, and here we pick it up again in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him. Verse 2, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He was a righteous king. <clears throat> Here it's used as an adjective. He was a king of peace, and to him Abraham gave a tenth of all. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever. So the idea there, first of all, well, let's pick this apart. See, there is the, there is the, the clue that cinches it that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, without father, without mother, without beginning of days or end of days. Is that what that verse is saying? Is that what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to us there? Remember, he's not. <laughs> it's being conveyed to us only secondarily. Right? But it's being conveyed primarily to the Hellenistic Jews of the day. Well, maybe the person, it can't be. He's actually human. Well, what is he conveying there then? He's talking about that it's an order, right? Rather than a name? It's an order, but why, is, why does he make the statement uh, without father or without mother? And without beginning of days or end of days. So if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that there is a very definite lineage in the priesthood. Right? So there is a, a lineage that is followed naming the priest. This is not applied to this priest Melchizedek. There's none of that information there. And, and it says he was made like unto the Son of God. Well, what does that mean? He isn't, but he's like him. What's that? He isn't, but he's like him. There's a likeness there. There are things that we could learn. There are things that the Old Testament saints could learn about the coming Messiah from, from looking at and considering this, this Melchizedekian priest. Okay, well, what was different about this Melchizedekian priest than the priesthood of Levi and the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. He's going to get into it later on here, but um, mostly held genealogies. Mostly held genealogies. A specific family. A specific family. 
Lots of bloody. Yeah, yeah. And remember, we we mentioned this last week. He was both a king and a priest, right? Kings came from the line of Judah. Priests came from the line of Levi. So there's nothing, and this is why even to this day, you know, uh, I've had conversations with with um, with knowledgeable Jews who said that they can prove to me that Jesus was not the Messiah because the Messiah would be priest and the Messiah would come out of the tribe of Levi. Right? But Jesus did not come out of the tribe of Levi. Well, yes, it does, right? But because we see them because we haven't been given over to stumbling. You know what I mean? So they've been given over to stumbling until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, right? And so you have in one office both king and priest, right? So there's a, a radical difference there from the Levitical priesthood, right? You, you, you don't have both. Okay, so there's that difference. All right. And again, so where it says there, remains a priest made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. That's not so much referring to the Melchizedek of the time, but it's referring to the priesthood. There's a continuous priesthood that runs all the way up and reaches its fulfillment and final manifestation in Jesus. Well, if we, um, that, like, I would. People could make sacrifices, right? Peace offerings. Well, we know that Abel did. Right. So, and, so. And there's there's kind of meaning for David and maybe Solomon making some type of sacrifice. Yeah. But not atoning. Right. Not the atoning sacrifices. So. This priest, well, ultimately, as you read on into Hebrews, as we get into Hebrews, that Christ, after his death and prior to his resurrection, uh, purified the heavenly tabernacle with his blood. Right? So obviously, um, you know, this priesthood was a priesthood that, that made, we'll say up until the time of Christ anyway, covering sacrifices, right? Okay, yes. Okay, so now I'm confused. So was there a Mr. Melchizedek? Yes. There was an actual man named Melchizedek, and then after him, his order continued on to be like, say, in the order of Levi. Yes. There was an actual Mr. Melchizedek. Mr. Melchizedek, only that wasn't his real name. That's more of a title than a name. So there wasn't a Mr. Melchizedek. No, there was a name... There was there were men who walked in the order of Melchizedek. No, a title, yeah. more of a title. Okay, okay. all right. Because at the end we'll get to who I think the name, the real name is. Right? Okay. Okay. Uh, so reading on uh, there. 
at the bottom of page two, without father, mother, does not mean no human parents, but means not listed in the genealogical record. Without genealogy, no beginning or end of days. So Melchizedek is not a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. Melchizedek was a man, and the author states that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God, not made the Son of God. Psalm 110.4 distinguishes Melchizedek from the Messiah. Hebrews 5.1 states very clearly that one of the prerequisites for priesthood was that the priest had to be a human male. Jesus did not become human until the Incarnation. Theophanies appeared and disappeared. In order to be the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek had to have had permanent residence in Jerusalem. So, now this is some information that we've already talked about. He was king of Jerusalem. He was a member of the Jebusite line of kings. And uh, there's some information there that you can go look at listing some, some similar names in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. Some of the points of similarities where Christ is similar, similar to Melchizedek. In Melchizedek, the office of king and priest was combined. Christ also. The Melchizedekian priesthood issued and resulted in blessings, Christ also, and concerns the issue of the tithe. The superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek is reflected in the issue of the tithe. There was no tithe law during the time of Abraham, uh, which was, a, on his part, a recognition of superiority. Tithes were offered through the priesthood to God. In doing this, Abraham recognized that this manifestation of Melchizedek was a legitimate priest appointed by God in the line of the Melchizedekian priesthood. The priesthood, both that of Aaron and Levi, were exempt from the general tithe law. The tithe law, when it was given, was such that people were to give their tithes to the priesthood. This represented giving those tithes to God. The tithe was mandated to support those who ministered in the temple and their families. The actual ministry of the temple and 10% of that tithe was dedicated to the actual offerings. The 10% of what Levites received was to be handed over to Aaron, the priest. The priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the Aaronic and Levite Levitical priesthood. Both of those groups paid tithes to Melchizedek through Adam, Abraham. And there, once again, we encounter the concept of federal headship. Melchizedek, well, because they were, the priesthood was not established, right? And so where were Aaron and Levi when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek? Where were they? No. But where were they? <laughs> they were in his loins. Just like the human race. No. So just like, you know, if the concept of federal headship, right, in Adam all sinned and all died, right? So, so here, and that's what the author... So they were, they were pre present in Adam, in Abraham, and so when Abraham paid tithes, they paid tithes. So the Levitical priests who were to receive the tithes paid tithes to the Melchizedekian priest, therefore demonstrating that the Melchizedekian priest was superior to and prior to the Levitical priesthood.
Okay. And that's what um, verse 4 goes on and says, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. To consider, to look at, to behold, and to ponder. And so, you know, the author here is now dealing, because this, you know, this isn't such a hard concept for us because we're Gentiles, right? But if you were a Jew, just wrestling with this idea that the Levitical priesthood, it was not the ultimate priesthood, but that there was a superior priesthood. Okay. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. <clears throat> the people were commanded to give their tithes to, the, to this priesthood, and the priests were commanded to receive it. God took this very seriously. Later, the people would forsake this law bring financial hardship to the temple ministry and those who ministered in the temple, and God would wreak havoc in their lives. Yet, how much greater was the, over on page four, yet how much greater was the priesthood of Melchizedek? Hebrews 7, 6 says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. He received, received tithes from those who were commanded to receive tithes from the general population. Now, in Hebrews 7, 7, we read, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So beyond all contradiction, there is essentially an indisputable axiom. The priesthood of Melchizedek pronounced blessing on Abraham and on the line of his descendants that would pronounce blessings on the general population of the people of God. <clears throat> in Hebrews 7, 8, we read, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So there is no record of Melchizedek's death, no record of anyone succeeding him. Uh, the Aaronic Levitical priesthood was a priesthood of dying men, but this Melchizedekian priesthood is a priesthood of immortal men, so to speak. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right. So everyone with me so far? I am, but I have a question. Yes. Um, so obviously in some sense here, there's a divine order that's being established with Melchizedek takes the tithes into the sun. Um, can you elaborate on that? Because i got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of a joke right now. To connect this okay, so. I, so so the way that I have connected it, right, and I've, I've done a lot of study on this, and this is the way that I connect it. So let's read on. So what can we take away from this, right? Who was this Melchizedek? I've already said that the order there actually means a succession, which implies a continuous line of priests from Adam to Christ. See Genesis 5. We'll look at that in a minute. He could not be a Jebusite, even though he was the king of a Jebusite city. Jebusites were from the line of Canaan, which was a cursed line. You can find that in Genesis 9.25. He must have been from the line of the promised seed. 
which flows through Seth to Noah to Shem. Now, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, and let's look at verse 5. Second Peter chapter 2. Okay, so what I want someone to do, so do you see in verse 5 you have two words that are italicized? You see that? Those are supplied words. Remove those supplied words and read the verse. Would you do it, Joe? Uh, yeah, starting at 5. Yeah, just 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. No. Nope. You missed a word. Oh, okay. Eight. Uh, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. Eight. A preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly. Okay. So if you, if you read that transliteration out of the Greek, it says Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness. So for some reason, when the, when the translators, they supplied words because they equated the eight with the eight on the ark, when the verse is actually saying, no, was the eighth in a line of preachers of righteousness. It kind of gets the mind going, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's here. I give it to you. Uh, So, so Shem is the ninth. Shem could not walk in the priesthood until Noah died. So I believe, and others, you know, believe that the Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14 is Shem. Now Shem actually outlives Abraham by, I've read 35 years, but when I do the math, it comes to 130 years. That Shem actually outlived Abraham. So the priesthood jumps from Seth to Isaac. It's a seed line that comes from Adam to so, Seth. So very much like the Levitical priesthood, it's a line of descent. Yes, but the descent is the seed line. Okay, so now if you go back and look at um, the way the overlapping lives, right? Because the priesthood could not be passed from father to son or the next in line until yeah. one died. So the priesthood could not pass from Shem to, let's say, is Isaac until Shem died. Couldn't pass to Abraham because Shem outlived Abraham, right? 
So this is what this is what you come up with. You come up with Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Methuselah, Noah, Shem. So Shem would be the ninth preacher of righteousness. Shem would be the Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14, which explains the bread and the wine. Because one of the kings who conquered Sodom was the king that I call the, uh, the Cheddar Cheese King. His name was actually Chedalomar. He was a he was the king of Elam. Elam was the either the first or second born son of of um, of Shem. Because it was a relative of Shem, and so the peace offering was hey. There's, even though you went and you took care of this distant relative of mine, what I've read was that he was a distant cousin of Shem, that in giving bread and wine to Abraham, he was signifying that there was no hard feelings and no bad blood between them. When you talked about them supplied words, who supplied them and why? They were supplied by the translators, probably the original name translated. They're not there in the Greek. Noah would be the eighth, if the eighth preacher of righteousness. And Shem would be the ninth. So I've given you something to think about and to study. <laughs> Luke. So I want to say Luke chapter 4 or Luke chapter 5. So there, there are those who say that the Melchizedekian line is clearly traceable in the Gospel of Matthew. But I believe it's actually in the Gospel of Luke because the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3, goes all the way back to Adam and in fact identifies the line Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Methuselah, Noah, Shem. And you actually also find something similar to that in Genesis chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter, let me find it, Genesis chapter 5, because in Genesis chapter 5, there's a very clear statement in there that Adam had additional sons and daughters, but the line, the genealogy starts getting traced through the line of Seth. Right? So. Pastor, what's interesting though is when uh, Luke chapter 3, it's right at the end. The son of Adam, the son of God. Yep. I mean, it really is that, that phrase right so there. So I think, I think the Melchizedekian priesthood is traced from Adam to Christ 
in the, in the Luke genealogy. Although someone, Stephen Armstrong, thinks it's in the Gospel of Matthew. But I think it's in the Gospel of Luke. That's where I find it. Well, um, I don't think Mark doesn't go back that far. No. Mark begins with Abraham. Matthew, yeah. Matthew starts with Abraham. Yeah. So there's no way of tracing it all the way back. No. Unless you go, but it's very clearly there in the Luke genealogy. Well, that's, that's a, a different perspective of, than most commentators about Luke. Yes. Luke, it, they get into, is this Mary, or is this um, talking about some aspect of uh, a, a Levitical marriage where one person dies? Yeah. Yeah, that's my perspective. The, the Luke genealogy is my perspective. I haven't, I haven't read that anywhere else. I've read, I've read the Matthew genealogy traces the Melchizedekian line, but to me it seems like that it's the Luke because Luke goes all the way back to Adam and begins the genealogy there. And then to be clear, you're saying you believe Abraham paid a tithe to Shem. To Shem. Well, no, that there's a lot of things the scripture don't tell us, right? It doesn't tell us about the Trinity either. But we have to, God wants us to dig. I'm saying that that is, that's what I've come up with after I've studied it. And, it. and all the pieces seem to fit together in that way or that way. And then, of course, am I nuts? Am I a heretic? And I find that I'm not because if you go back and look at some very ancient rabbinical writings... They identify that Melchizedek is Shem. And it fits. And it fits. And I'm saying, well, they must have read it the same way because it fits. They would have really cared about the Hebrew interpretation because that would have been Old Testament Hebrew. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Well, there are different. So there are differing, first of all, in, that, in, the, in the culture of the day, right? And let's talk about the time of Christ. For a man to even show his legs was a thing of shame. So for, for him to look upon his father's nakedness and then go out and tell his brothers about it was to purposely subject his father to shame. Right? As and as not as honor as his father. As opposed to seeing his face and covering, and covering him right then and, and then. just shutting up about it, right? Not subjecting his father to shame. Mm -hmm. So it was on the basis of that that Noah pronounced the curse, but he didn't pronounce it on him, he pronounced it on his son. And so that is ultimately the reason for the obliteration of the Canaanite line. There are no more Canaanites. Right? When you can, and you can't consider Ammon and Moab Canaanites because they weren't. They were descendants of Lot who had sex with, whose two daughters had sex with them and produced, one produced Ammon and the other one produced Moab. What about the one tribe that made a covenant with Joshua? The Gibeonites. Were they Canaanites? I don't know if the Gibeonites were Canaanites. I don't... Well, yeah, because of the covenant that Joshua made with them foolishly, right? right. 
but but the the Canaanite line actually yeah it comes from it comes from it's the Ham line right they come from Ham but Ham had two other sons besides Canaan there's no curse pronounced upon them so the Gibeonites may well come from one of those sons of Ham yeah but we skip over genealogy because we think oh man this what is this you know but there's a ton of stuff in there that you just got to take your time and work you through work you through it like so I sat down with a pen and I went through the genealogy from Shem to Abraham and I'm and I'm like wait a minute Shem lived he outlived Abraham because it says that Shem lived 500 years after the death after the birth of his firstborn son, and he had his firstborn son at 100 years old, and he lived 500 years after that, according to my math. So according to my math, he outlived, he outlived Abraham by 135 years. According to the rabbinical math, Shem outlived Ab Abraham by 35 years. So, you know, they're probably right, and I'm probably wrong, but... Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. I'm not saying that I'm right, right? But I'm saying that when you study this out and you consider the possibility, first of all, you can right off take right off the table this whole idea of being a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person. And that can be taken right off the table. Then you have to deal with, well, what's the bread and the wine about? It's not a precursor to communion you know so what is it there has to be some cultural significance there and when you start figuring out you start looking at you know I mean we don't take we don't take rabbinical writings as scripture but it would be foolish for us to discount them altogether right so like like uh, and I think this is if anyone here is familiar with the uh, with the, uh, the uh, fundamental modernist controversy of the early 1900s, right? There was an overreaction. And the overreaction was they took, some of those groups took 1,500 years of Christian scholarly work and pitched it right out the window because it was associated with what was considered Roman Catholicism, which was a foolhardy thing to do. What, now you're going to go back and reinvent the wheel? You're going to discount all of that scholarship? Of course it's not infallible, but it doesn't mean it's all useless. Right? right? And, so, and so I think the same thing holds true with, with rabbinical writings. They're not all bad. And we have to remember, they were the ones to whom God entrusted his oracles. Right? And so... so we would be foolish to accept it all at face value without being discerning and comparing it to the, what the scripture says and doing appropriate Bible, historical, contextual study. But we would likewise be foolish in discounting it 100% too. I mean, after all, we used to Josephus. Yeah. Well, and we use... Well that's, well, that's what we do, right? We're using the Masoretic text for the Old Testament that was assembled by rabbinical scholars hundreds of years after the New Testament. Yeah, and I've read some 
Okay, but it's also more Hellenistic. So it came under, you know, Hellenistic influences. And the reality is, is so the argument that's made is, well, much of the New Testament is quoted out of the Septuagint. But is it because the Septuagint is more authoritative or is it because that was the actual language of the people of the day? Yeah. So the apostles, most of them from Galilee, were more familiar with the Septuagint than you know, the old Hebrew writings. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm comfortable with the position that I've arrived at, you know, with the study I've done. I'm not saying I'm infallible. I could be wrong. Um, but I've checked my work against other work and it's in the ballpark, let's say, right? But one thing we can take immediately off the table was this business of pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Well, I, I have a two questions, relative questions. Um, do the rabbinical writings think this? And if they do, do the modern rabbis come to this place? And what we're really talking about is that the Aaronic No, no. What they believe is that the the Melchizedekian priesthood morphed into the Levitical priesthood. How do they get that? Well, they have to get there. As you see, their theology requires that they get there, or else they have to they have to acknowledge that there is a superior longer standing priesthood than the Levitical priesthood, which also then opens the door that one might walk in that office of priest who is not of the tribe of Levi. Yeah, so there's, um, there's some interesting thought when you read Exodus, that the original priesthood um, before the golden No, I've, I've not really considered it from that perspective. I mean, I'll look at it. Um, so. Because of, you know, the, the um, threshold covenant is all about the priesthood. Oh, you did go back and do some study on the threshold covenant? Yeah. That's another good one. That's another. Yeah. The whole concept of the threshold covenant. Yeah. So which, which, which would explain why when the glory of God is departing the temple during the prophecy of Ezekiel, the glory of the Shekinah stops over the threshold to the door, signifying that he was no longer going to be the God of that house. And he moved from there to the east gate, up to the, up to the Mount of Olives, and when Jesus returns, that's the exact path he retreats, he retraces. Mount of Olives through the East Gate into the Holy of Holies. So now, now my head is swimming with <laughs> <laughs>
not dueling. Well, but they're still existing. Yes. At the same time, and so what's the function of both? We know the function of the. Well, the function of the Melchizedekian priesthood was to bring in the seed line. To bring the seed line in until the one would come, who would take up that succession, and. Yes. So the Melchizedekian priesthood would be like the top priesthood. Yes, you have the Melchizedekian priesthood, whose primary function was to add to act as an intercessor between God and man, right, and to carry the seed line to the Messiah, who would be the f the final and ultimate Melchizedekian priest. So by following the seed line, he's able to be the priest. Yes. I haven't worked out all the details yet. You, as you can imagine, this involves quite a bit of study and reading. But I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when you get into the nation of Israel, because the Melchizedekian priesthood comes into Israel by... Well, it, it comes into the descendants of Abraham, so right? And it travels from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, because Isaac died while Jacob was still alive, and then one of the sons. So in that genie, I believe in that genealogy, I haven't done the, you know, you have to like, what you have to do is you have to take all the names, and you have to get all the dates. Born, died, right? And you have to figure out, okay, when this one died, who was the next living one in the seed line? Then the, then the Melchizedekian priesthood passes through him. Yes, because it has to come to Messiah. But we just don't know how it skips through, right? Because it can only pass when, when the current, when the current priest dies. Then the order moves to the next one in line. Well, that would be Luke. Okay, yeah, because uh, that, Solomon the outlived. But see, then the problem is, what about uh, Rehoboam? Right, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Rehoboam outlived Solomon. He became king when Solomon died. And this guy was a he was a cad. Right. So the. Yeah, but it doesn't have to follow the kingship. It doesn't have to follow the kingship. It has to follow the genetic line. So you have Rehoboam and Nathan as sons of Solomon and Solomon. Yeah, that's why you, you can't really, you know, it's hard to figure. It's too much for me anyway right now to do the math and to see, okay, who could the possibilities be? You have to line up the genealogy and then figure out birth date okay this one died here so uh so it could be this this that that or that one i don't know well would it be the first one well that, that was my question would it go from abraham to reuben i don't know i don't know i don't know i haven't i don't have that much brain power joe 
Yeah. I think it was functioning in the in, functioning all the way into Jesus, but its primary function was to carry the seed line. But it's it, because its whole function was to take the seed line to Jesus. But we don't actually have any any proof in the scripture that the Melchizedekian priest line was a sacrificing priest line. It probably wasn't. Right? We already have it. We, it doesn't, we don't have that information. So it was a priest line in the sense that it was a, he was a mediator between God and man, but that, meteor, that, that, that mediatorial office does not necessarily involve blood sacrifice. Okay, so so then so okay, very well. I I don't know. I just don't know. You know, I, there's no real indication in Scripture. I mean, we got two verses in the Old Testament that talk about Melchizedek. Right? And so a lot of what we're doing is inference and speculation, right? But I think it's, it's, I think it's good inference and good speculation. It's good to speculate, right? Because a lot of times when you speculate, you find out that you speculated wrong, right? So you close off that road and you find another road to go down because it's got to add up. I think, I think there's a reason why this is in there, that God wants us to connect the dots, and if we're diligent enough, he will, we, he'll allow us to connect the dots, right? And so, you know, I think it's well-meaning but lazy to just say, oh, that's just a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity because it flies in the face. What it says is you don't even know what the priesthood is about then. You know, what's the quali qualifications for priesthood? We learn the qualifications for priesthood by looking at the Levitical priesthood. <laughs> I think that's why it's there. To tell us what the qualification for priesthood was. Because without that, we wouldn't know, would we? How would we know what the qualification for priesthood was if we didn't have the account of the Le Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament? We wouldn't know. What did I say again? <laughs> okay. Um, my first point. What was my first point? No, on the application, page four. Oh. Oh, the issue of the priesthood is a very serious one. Thank you, Roman. Fool around with it. The priests are what God commands concerning them, and you live to regret it. Since the New Testament says that we are all a royal priesthood, it is possible that we can fool around and neglect our obligations to the priesthood, which priesthood we all are. But we are not priests of the Melchizedekian order. As we'll see next week, Christ, Christ the one who bought us with his blood is, and it's very bad business to fail or neglect the obligations that we all have to him. But the truth of this passage is also a source of great hope and expectation. 
Christ is as Melchizedek, both king and priest in one office. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And he is the coming king of both the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. And he is, ki he is kind and compassionate priest who abounds in forgiveness, blessing to his people. This is why the author, while speaking grave words to them, had a hopeful expectations concerning the people to whom he was writing, and so do I. This is why he kept urging them on to spiritual maturity. God cannot fail in his promises, and we have a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. There it is. <laughs>